Good morning to all of you. I was really intrigued with what Cindy and what Jeff had to say in thinking about the many ways in which people, ordinary people, children, youth, young adults, middle adults, older adults, who have had a transforming moment in some adventure that they're on. I think the Word of God comes to us in action mode. When we are in action mode and we are doing and we are acting on behalf of the, the kingdom of God, somehow in the middle of that, something comes to us that calls us, that taps us on a shoulder. So I highly encourage you to think about uh, taking part in one of these trips. It's an amazing experience to be on mission for God. I guess I would say all that because of thinking about this particular instance in the scripture that I'm about to read, this action moment for Jesus. Uh, last week, Melissa tipped it over. It's a two-part sermon. She had the first part. She had what I think was the sweet part, the wonderful part. And I have the part where they take Jesus out and they threaten to kill him. It's all the same moment. It's an amazing turnabout that goes into play into this moment of time. Let's read the scripture together. It comes from the Gospel of Luke. He began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. They said, Is this not little Joseph's son? He said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Doctor, cure yourself, and you will say, Do here also in your hometown the things that we have heard you did at Capernaum. And he said, truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown. But the truth is, there were many widows in Israel in the time of Elijah when the heaven was shut up three years and six months. And there was a severe famine all over the land. Yet Elijah, he's reaching back into Hebrew scripture, the scripture that they had at hand. Elijah was sent to none of them except to a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. There were also many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. And none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. And when they heard this, all in the synagogue were filled with rage. And they got up and they drove him out of the town and led him to the brow of a hill on which their town was built so they might hurl him off the cliff. But he passed through the midst of them and went on his way. It's an amazing turnaround of a story. The story begins so great. Isn't this, isn't this our boy? Isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph? And by the time he says just a couple of things to them, he tips over a domino that says they have to take him out and they have to kill him, or they threaten to kill him. I'm curious where prophets come from. What kind of a community does it take to raise prophets from childhood? Prophets like Jeremiah or Ezekiel or even Jesus himself. I know that in a church like this one, 
that we have seen season after season where the breezes of God blow. Maybe they blow while our teenagers are on a trip to the Badlands. Maybe the breezes blow while we have a group that's in Africa doing mission work. Maybe we have the breezes of God that might blow during a vacation Bible school or some other activity that's going on in this community. Maybe it's in the food bank. Maybe it's in a whole bunch of different areas. But somehow the breezes of God blow. And someone, in the mystery of that, senses the breezes of God and responds to it. Someone who says, this is the direction of my life. I want to change. This is the implicit, the implicit possibility that happens anytime we gather for worship. The mystery of Pentecost was that the breezes of God began to blow violently and began to really circle around the, the roof area. And the whole room began to erupt with the fire of God's presence. That could happen at any time or any place when the people of God worship. When we worship, there is always the possibility that one of us may rise up and testify that God has called them to some sacred calling in their life. One of my good friends over the last 40 years has been Kyle Childress. He's a pastor in a little dinky church in a small town in Nacogdoches, Texas. He's been there for 30 years, faithfully serving uh, that church as pastor. He's an amazing witness. He tells the story when he was growing up in West Texas. He grew up out on the uh, kind of the ugly part of the state, unless you've been there and learned to love it. But he grew up in West Texas, and one of the football heroes that was a little older than him ended up going to Vietnam. He was, he was recruited. He was uh, sent to the war in Vietnam. And while he was there, this football hero was injured severely, lost his leg in the war, and he came back a hero. He was already a hero in town because of his football uh, reputation, but then he became a military hero as well. And he came home with a message. He began to speak about the way God had spoken to him, and he had a message to give. His message was this, God told me that the war was wrong. That's probably not a big surprise to someone who's gone and given of their life and nearly died from it. But he said this as well, and the town should change their hearts and minds about racial segregation. This goes back to that time when communities had to think about what they would do, how they would respond to the issue of segregation. And some in the community, you can almost see them doing this, began to say, the war messed with his mind. He is not right. He is mentally ill from his experiences of trauma. Some said this about him, some said other things, but one Sunday, Kyle's father, who had been his, this boy's Sunday school teacher when he was a teenager, he said, I don't know exactly what happened to him, and I don't know if he has mental problems or not, but that didn't mean that he was wrong. This leader in the community, Mr. Childress, was a member of the school board, and he began to push for integration. Something changed in this boy, and he came back with a message, and his influence triggered some other changes in the community. 
Now, I had this story stopped last week. Uh, Melissa preached it beautifully. It was a wonderful story. But had it stopped with Jesus just reading from the scroll from Isaiah 61, and had Jesus simply been content to make his one-line pronouncement that this scripture was being played out before their eyes. That was his self-statement about what he had read. This was the thing that he believed that was taking place. This scripture is true in my life, he was saying. I think if it had stopped there, we would have all just been mesmerized by it. It was a lovely story. But you can't put a big bow on this uh, trip home because of the goodness of the story is spoiled when Jesus poked a hole in their idea of religious nationalism. That's the topic that he's speaking about. It's an insipid version of patriotism propped up by faith. It's especially true these days. We hear a lot about religious nationalism. Whenever God bless America becomes code language that God blesses America more fully than God blesses everyone else, we have religious nationalism. That's just the way this is. In other words, Jesus couldn't just read the scripture and bless it as an affirmation in his own calling. He took a risk and he spoke prophetically. He meddled with their religious ideas and he broke ranks with their Jewish understanding of their exclusive covenant with God. And for that, they threatened to kill him. You see how this thing, this story animates all of a sudden, this turn that takes place. In the middle of the story, the story shifts and changes. And it's a, a radically different second half of a story. There's a real danger in preaching a message that stirs the bottom of the pot of acceptable ideas. You take a risk as a preacher, male or female, it matters not. It matters not what denomination. It matters not about any of that. For someone who's in the place that I'm in, to take a step and take a stand takes a risk. Walter Brueggemann, the, New, the Old Testament professor who says more about the prophets than anyone I know, Professor Brueggemann calls this the settled reality. Whenever someone who has the opportunity to teach or to preach preaches in a way in which God is open to all people and attending to the needs of all people rather than just the chosen few, you are messing with the settled reality. And here's the general rule. There's a general rule that works about this. When the prophets speak about the past or about the future, no one cares too much. There's just not a lot of heat that's generated when you do some prophetic preaching about the past or if you look over the horizon to the future. No one's too wired up about that. But say a prophetic word about the present moment and the ions in the room shift. People get on attention. People listen closely, waiting to see what the next thing is. If the prophet speaks into the present moment, it all comes unglued. It, it was true in the prophet's day. You look at all the prophets. When they begin to preach into, in present tense, in the present moment, the culture, the community, the tribes all came unglued. It's the same thing when Jesus gets up. They threaten to kill him. It's true today. 
It's a complicated thing to preach prophetically in the present moment, in present tense. In his opportunity to read from the scriptures, Jesus chose this passage from Isaiah chapter 61, and with it he made a self-statement to his home congregation, his home people, his tribe, that clearly declared to them about what kind of a person he had become. He wanted his hometown community to know he was making a break from the settled reality and that his life was headed in a new direction. This was important to Jesus to make this statement. He had the opportunity, he had the stage, he had the platform, the scroll was given to him. He rolled it open to this particular place in Isaiah chapter 61, and he read, and that wasn't enough. He handed the scroll over to the the scribe, and the scribe put it back into its stored place, and he sat down, and it got really quiet. And he made the words of Isaiah his own. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he chose me to go and preach the good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus read the words of Isaiah and then he silently sat down and he waited for the moment to turn. And then he said in a very measured way of speaking, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. This is his first sermon with his kin, the people who had known him all of his life. This is his first opportunity to declare to them who he was and something about his calling. Some were filled with open admiration. Some were wondering. They weren't quite sure what to hear. Some were doubting. And Jesus provoked an angry response by quoting two well-known proverbs. Physician, heal thyself. And the second, no prophet is acceptable in his own country. His words were electric. They turned the whole place upside down. The words of Isaiah spoken by the anointing of the Spirit and the work of a prophet and the dramatic signs of God's redemption. And Jesus defended himself by referencing two Old Testament stories. Unless you've been born and raised and lived in Sunday school all of your life, these stories may not be very familiar to you, but they should be because they rise up out of the centuries of history and they become relevant in this particular story. Elijah and Elisha. And when I was a kid, I could not keep them separated. I did not know which was which and why they were different. But we're going to talk about that. Remember Elijah? Elijah was one of the greatest of the Hebrew prophets. The Hebrew people looked back upon Elijah with great favor. But who did he feed in a time of great famine? No one from Nazareth or from Jerusalem or even Capernaum, some of the major towns in northern Israel. None of them were fed. Instead, he fed a widow in Zarephath. Meaning, Jesus walked past those, those Jewish communities 
and got all the way out on the edge to where Lebanon and Israel come together to the little village of Zarephath, and he fed the widow there. Did you know that today, even today, you cannot travel to Lebanon from here or any other country if you have Israel on your passport, that you have been to Israel. They will not let you in Lebanon. I made a trip to Lebanon about a decade ago with a bunch of Baptist ministers, and we were there at the seminary that was uh, there in Beirut. We were there for a week with other pastors, Baptist pastors, and they told us from the outcome, if you have Israel on your passport, go get another passport. Get them to check you out another passport because you will not get in to Lebanon. What an amazing piece of history that is still relevant, still true, even today. Remember Elisha? This is the other character. Elisha was everyone's miracle worker. Did he heal anyone from Israel, the northern kingdom? No. Did Jesus remind them? Jesus reminded them that the only leper that he healed was Naaman the Syrian. We only know, we only know some of these historical places because of the military aspect of these stories. It continues to go on and on. In Syria, just off to the northeast of Israel, Naaman the Syrian, he was a, an enemy army commander. He was in charge of the troops there in Syria, and Elisha goes and heals him. Couldn't Elisha cure anyone from Israel? Surely we have soldiers in our own army, they might think, that need healing. Could Elisha not stop for a moment healing the Syrian? Could he not come over on our own side of the border? And so there's the tension that erupts. But it's not between Jesus and Judaism. It's not between Jesus and his teaching of these stories. It's between Judaism and its own scriptures. These are, these are well-trod stories in the Hebrew scripture. Jesus didn't make these things up. He didn't tell them something they didn't already knew. No, they knew exactly what this was. These are stories out of their own scripture that he lifted up and held up to them. The Israelites should have heard Jesus' message and accepted the truth of it. It was a part of their own scriptures. They couldn't do that. Israel knew God's grace toward all peoples as early as the covenant of Abraham. This goes way back into their own history, into their own collection of stories. They knew it, but they couldn't make it operate for themselves. It didn't fit their paradigm of religious nationalism, that God loves us way more than God loves the Syrians or the Lebanese. God forbid the Lebanese. We have examples in our own culture about this, about the ways in which we show favoritism on the idea of God loves America, but yet God also loves the whole world. And we could stop, and I would probably get in trouble in true prophetic style if I kept saying this. But it's a part of the scripture itself. They read the scriptures as the exclusive word of God, to them only, 
as an exclusive covenant with them. They ignored the the aspects in which God was trying to be in conversation with all people and to show God's love. Jesus, as a prophetic voice of provocation, couldn't let that idea go unchallenged. And so the subtext to the reading of his inauguration text, this text, the second half of this text from Isaiah 61, he drew a line in the sand that he would not be associated with this kind of exclusive thinking about the world. He understood his mission clearly and he did not flinch from the political fallout that came from his first encounter of substance. Jesus proved himself to be someone who was dangerous to ignore. He was a political and theological threat to the settled realities of his time and they carried him up to the brow of a hill. This is just outside of Nazareth. We'll put the photograph up. It's an incredible place. This is there today, of course. The same hill. They carried him. They pushed him. They prodded him up to the top of this hill. And they threatened to throw him over. That hill today is obvious for those who visit Nazareth. I've been up there several times. It is a wicked hill with jagged rocks. You might not die from the fall. It might not be fatal. There's not enough elevation to say you might be airborne long enough so that when you finally hit, you would die. That's not a given. What is a given is that you would be broken. Your body would be broken to pieces. You might come away with brain injuries. You would come away with broken bones. Your skin would be fractured. And facing peril, Jesus mustered the energy to walk between the crowd. There's a sense in which he is so identified about himself that he walked between them. This particular phrase is quite fascinating. He walked between the binary trap that they were giving him. You either love us or you, you hate these people. These are your choices. The binary trap of this and that. He proved that he was not pro-Jew and anti-Samaritan. Jesus proved that he was not pro-Zarephath and anti-Nazareth. He wasn't a supporter of a political party. He wasn't a Republican, nor was he a, re- a Democrat. Jesus was not a Lutheran, he was not a Baptist, and many scholars would just say he wasn't even a Christian, as the concept was not pertinent yet. He was Jewish. Was he for these other things and against these things? No. He wasn't contained or hemmed in by a singular identity. He didn't live according to the boundaries that others put up for him. And this incident is thus a prelude. This is a foreshadowing story of how they would get rid of him on Golgotha. This is a story about that. When did they threaten you? When was your first threat, Brother Jesus? It was way back there in Nazareth when they carried me up to the top of this hill. I guarantee you, 
you should be afraid of falling on the hill, but to be hurled and airborne before landing should be a threat that you pay attention to. The God-called prophets always see things that the rest of us don't see. And like Jesus, the role of the prophet is simply to speak the words God puts in their mouths. And Jesus pointed his friends and family to a world called the kingdom of God. And it cost him his life. Not on this day, but a few years later. Maybe this explains the handful of times in Jesus' ministry where you hear him, and maybe it's almost uttered in such a way that it doesn't really get a lot of airtime, but thinking, hmm, hmm, for those who have ears to hear, he said multiple times. The prophet could never tell for sure whether those who heard him were listening or not. I doubt that he said it for their benefit, but he said it because it was a proven reality in the community. He couldn't tell whether they were listening or not, or at least he couldn't tell until they tried to kill him. Amen.